How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to continue my conversation with financial journalist and author Roger Lowenstein as we discuss his book, Ways and Means, Lincoln and His Cabin and the Financing of the Civil War. So in our first conversation, uh, we talked about the financing of the Civil War as it relates to the Union and the North and went through the challenges that the North had. But let's talk in this part of our conversation about the South and the Confederacy. Uh, They're much smaller than the Union, much smaller than North. How did the South plan to finance its part of the war, or did it not really plan to finance it very much because they didn't think the war would last very long? Well, that's exactly right. They didn't think the war would last very long. Neither did the North, by the way. You know, every time any war starts, everybody's going to be home by Christmas and everybody's going to be a winner. But the South had, apart from that delusion or illusion that the North and South share, the illusion of a short war, the South shared another illusion. If I can make the comparison to today and the illusion that Vladimir Putin had, because I think he felt that because he had a a monopoly or an agalopoly over energy in Central Europe, that he'd be able to control the events in Ukraine and quickly bring uh, Europe to heel and that that war to a successful finish. We don't know how the war in Ukraine is going to end, but certainly we can say it's gone on for a lot longer and been a lot more difficult uh, than Putin uh, must have imagined. The South also uh, had control of uh, a very important commodity, the oil of its day. Uh, And of course, I mean cotton. And I I think all monopolists are led to illusory thinking over the power that this gives them. Uh, James Hammond, the senator from South Carolina, famously said in 1857 or 58, on the floor of the Senate, cotton is king. No nation dares uh, make war on cotton. He was speaking both of the United States and he was speaking of Europe. The European powers, uh, England and France, were tremendous importers of Southern cotton. They had tremendous uh, textile industries. Uh, They had tremendous labor forces that were dependent on the Southern cotton. And they believed that if there ever were a war, European powers would rush in and prevent uh, the North from attacking or from prevailing or from continuing because they were just too dependent uh, on the cotton. One of the... uh, secretaries in uh, Jefferson Davis's cabinet said after the shooting started, scoffingly, he said, if there's any blood that's shed, we'll be able to wipe it away with our handkerchief. Uh, That was how dismissive he was of the possibility of real bloodshed. But um, this went beyond uh, an innocent joke. When the war started, uh, there were two strategies for the South. One was the the cotton harvest was in, and an advisor to Jefferson Davis named Judah Benjamin from Louisiana, a planter himself, suggested that the South ship all the cotton it could to England right away. 
Uh, although the North wanted to blockade it, the North didn't have a Navy to speak of at that time. There were open sea lanes and the South could have shipped just tons and tons of cotton and sold them piecemeal uh, as the demands of the war needed uh, to pay for arms and, and food and everything else. But believe it or not, uh, Jefferson Davis uh, fell for a counter strategy. He was sold on the idea that if the South didn't send cotton, and um, contrary to that, if it embargoed its own cotton and prevented Europe from getting any cotton, they would protest, they would rush forth and stop the war from being fought because they could not tolerate an absence of cotton. And they didn't even really stop to think about, well, uh, is this true? Will the Europeans really stop the war? How would they stop the war? They're over there, we're here. Uh, will they want to get involved in a military dispute with the uh, greater armies of the United States? They just thought magically cotton is king and, and that will take uh, care of it. It was a colossal blunder. So Jefferson Davis is the head of the Confederacy. Does he have a finance background? Does he really know much about finance or not? No, he's a cotton planter. He had been born uh, in a log cabin in Kentucky, about 100 miles from the Lincoln log cabin. It was a not quite as rudimentary as a Lincoln log cabin, but nonetheless, the family moved down to Mississippi when he was young. Uh, his brother gifted him uh, a cotton plantation, and he became uh, one of the wealthiest cotton plantation uh, owners in Mississippi. Uh, if I could just contrast uh, his economic philosophy with Lincoln's, the Lincoln government created a Homestead Act to create opportunities for farmers uh, without land. Uh, they created uh, the Moral Land Grant College Act to create uh, inexpensive uh, colleges for the middle class. They created an agriculture department to spread seeds and, and technical know-how to poor farmers. Jefferson Davis and the Southern aristocracy was against all of this. They didn't believe in, uh, in opportunity, obviously not for black slaves, but really not opportunity for poor whites either because the majority of poor whites in the South didn't own slaves. The Confederacy was set up to benefit the minority of rich Southerners who owned the bulk of the slaves. In fact, uh, Jefferson scoffed at this idea of an agriculture department. He said agriculture needs no teaching by Congress. And for Jefferson Davis, it didn't after all, because he'd been given a, a free plantation from his brother. And that was a difference in the philosophy. So Sam and Chase, as we discussed in our first section, uh, of this uh, conversation about your book was the person who was Secretary of Treasury and responsible for developing the financing means for the Union. Who was the equivalent person for the Confederacy? So the equivalent person for the Confederacy was Gustavus Memminger. He was a German immigrant from the, the then uh, German states. He'd grown up in, in Charleston. And by the time of the 1860s, uh, he was a, a blue blood Southern uh, aristocrat. Uh, he was very conservative, financier, uh, very wary of inflation, uh, very wary of just, you know, printing money uh, willy-nilly, and um, wanted uh, actually do a lot of the things that Sam and Chase did, wanted to, to set up a tax to uh, to fund the Confederacy so they wouldn't have to just uh, print notes uh, right and left. That was his aim anyway. Was there any income tax in the South or any other types of taxes that the South had to finance the war? They were extremely adverse uh, to taxes. Uh, first, um, most of the wealth in the South was in the form of two assets, land and slaves. And these slave owners held all the political power. They did not want to be taxed. They didn't want to be forced to monetize their assets 
land and slaves by selling it. There wasn't a market for them once the war began. And so for a long time, uh, there was a very little tax to speak of. A very scant tax was, was taxed, but they refused to allow a federal collection of it, federal within the Confederate system. And uh, virtually none of the Southern states uh, even bothered to collect a tax. They didn't even bother to assess the rolls. Uh, ultimately, uh, they had to have a, a imposition uh, taxes in kind. They went from farm to farm, just seizing um, materials, horses, cows, uh, grains, whatever they were. Of course, uh, farmers tried to hide them and get around them. It was a very inefficient system, a very ineffective system. This is almost a, a barter system. They never did create an effective financial means of, of raising money uh, that raised substantial sums. Did the South ever try to borrow money uh, from uh, England or France or other European countries? And how did that work? Yes. The South had this problem, which was they had all this cotton, but the cotton uh, was in the South. And um, what they needed was was uh, money from, uh, from England. Obviously, they weren't going to get money from the United States. Once the South dropped its, its self-embargo and realized this was a foolish strategy, they began to try to ship cotton. But by then, uh, the North had a blockade, and the Northern blockade was increasingly effective in stopping shipments. So the problem for the South was how to get the money from England and France and other European states now when they wouldn't be able to get the cotton until after the war. So a man named Emile Erlanger, a French financier, the French uh, partner of a German banking house came up with a way to, to solve this. He said, we will lend you money based on the cotton behind it, and we won't ask for uh, uh, the cotton itself uh, until the end of the war. Well, this was, was a mana from heaven uh, from, the, from the point of view of the South. They would get the money now. The Europeans could claim the cotton later. They, they were, the, the Europeans could come claim the cotton now if they were willing to run the blockade and go to the South. But otherwise, the South would deliver to them uh, when the war was over. And um, this was a brilliant stroke. And uh, they were known as the Erlanger bonds. Now, in the North, uh, Salmon Chase decided ultimately to publish or print something called greenbacks, which were, in effect, new version of legal tender. Basically said, this is something that the government of the North or Union uh, recognizes as legal tender. Why did the South not try to do something equivalent? Well, they debated legal tender. And what they were afraid of was if they called it legal tender, which meant merchants would be forced to accept it, soldiers would be forced to accept Southern notes, they were afraid that this would cause inflation. It would show a lack of confidence. And really, the whole philosophy of the South was to not have an imposing federal government. After all, that was why they had succeeded, right? To get away from uh, you know, the tyrant Lincoln, as they referred to him. So they were uh, constitutionally averse to doing things like having a federal income tax, federal legal tender, federal in the, in the context of the, of the Southern uh, government. So instead they printed notes, but the reason the South had inflation wasn't because they were, they weren't called legal tender. It was because they printed too many notes and there, was no, there were no revenues, there was no tax base behind them. Uh, if anything, legal tender would have slightly helped, but but they never went that route. So one of the assets they had in the South was the slaves. And there were, uh, I guess, at the time of the Civil War in the South, about three and a half million slaves. Was there any thought to either selling slaves to raise money or to letting them fight in the war as free labor? There was a market within the South 
uh, say from the northern uh, southern states, uh, uh, Virginia uh, and North Carolina to some extent, uh, and uh, Tennessee, you know, down to the Deep South. Um, and that had been going on before the war because slaves were more useful in cotton production than, than they were in the types of farming and industry that were in the Northern South. But as the war went on, just because the financial crisis was in the South, there was less market uh, for slaves even within the South. And uh, Britain had outlawed the slave trade. They weren't gonna be able to get them to the Caribbean or Cuba, other places that, that still had uh, slavery. But there was discussion of self-emancipating. And the reason was as more and more slaves fled and escaped, the South was slowly losing its labor force. And uh, there were Southerners who said, you know, we can offer Southern Blacks something that the North can't offer them. We can offer them their freedom right here at home. Because although they were slaves in the South, they were at home in the South. Obviously the attraction of going North was the North was offering them freedom. And there was very quiet discussion about offering them emancipation, bring them into the army where they would bolster the fighting forces, which of course was a great advantage, and then liberating them afterwards. The Southerners seemed to realize that you couldn't ask a man to fight and risk his life and, and then call him, him or his family a slave. But uh, Howell Cobb, uh, the, the former uh, governor of, uh, of Georgia and the president of the Confederate Congress said, if we make slaves soldiers, that our whole theory of slavery was wrong. He said that with unintended irony, like if slaves are capable of, do, of fighting and, 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 and risking their lives, like, I guess we underestimated their capability, huh? Uh, Jefferson Davis heard this talk and he squelched it. He ordered the people talk about it to seize. It never came up until the last months of the war when the South was so desperate that it was again willing to talk about uh, enlisting blacks uh, in their army. And by then it was too late. Now, the war was originally thought, as we discussed earlier, to last a relatively short time at the outset. It lasted four years. Do you think that if the South had been able to be more successful militarily and the war lasted just one year or a year and a half, the lack of financing that the South had would have been less of a problem and maybe the South could have prevailed because it was only because of the inability to raise money for four years that the South just didn't have the the uh, weaponry and the, and the manpower to compete. I think they were very successful uh, militarily. They never ran out of bullets. Uh, they never uh, ran out of guns. They, it was the fact that uh, militarily they were so successful that the financing needs became so much more protracted uh, you know, than they imagined, uh, particularly in those early cabinet sessions when they talked about where they said, well, we'll just embargo cotton for a few months and um, everything will be over. The other reason, by the way, that they thought about liberating the slaves was they realized that they were on the wrong side of European public opinion. Uh, the South's whole strategy depended on getting the Europeans to force the North and South into some sort of a truce. And once the Union went the route of the Emancipation Proclamation, which was midway in the war in 1863, the South realized it was on the wrong side of, of European public opinion and would never uh, uh, get them to come around. Their great stroke, as I said, was these Erlanger bonds. These bonds uh, floated in Europe. But once again, they made uh, a great mistake. Erlanger wanted to float 75 billion of bonds. This would have funded the South for a long time uh, for, for reasons that were beyond me and never really explained. Jefferson Davis and Reminger, his Secretary of the Treasury, refused to subscribe to more than 15 million 
they really thought all they would need to do was float a few of these bonds. Once the Europeans were investing in their bonds, they'd become invested in the cause and bring a war to an end. Once again, they thought of these bonds just as a public relations uh, uh, gambit rather than uh, as a way to finance uh, years and, and years of uh, more fighting. The bonds were a great hit in Europe. They traded close to par, meaning 100 cents in the dollar. And surprisingly, this was higher than the, than the rate on union bonds. And the Europeans actually thought that win or lose, these bonds would be good. That's to say, even if the Confederacy lost, they thought the union would honor these bonds. And for some reason, send them, uh, you know, Mississippi cotton or Georgia cotton or whatever state. Of course, you know, these bonds ultimately were, were worthless. When these negotiations were going on, the South had uh, arms dealers in all the major European capitals, and they were uh, negotiating for big arms shipments. Uh, when they found out that uh, the South was only going to borrow 15 million of these bonds, uh, they were horrified. Meanwhile, you can see in the communications back and forth, the people in Richmond were uh, talking very brilliantly about all the arms they were going to get with these Erlanger bonds. And the actual arms dealers working for the South in London, in Paris, were saying, I fear that the Davis government is sadly misled about the amount that we're going to be able to raise. And they were misled. And uh, the whole effort really never raised more than a tiny proportion of what it could have. So when the war ended, there were bonds outstanding that the Confederacy had issued. And I guess there was some Confederacy currency some Confederate notes or some type? There was a billion dollars in Confederate. Uh, so yeah. how much was that all worth? Zero? Did, did the union say, well, well, we'll honor it 10 cents on a dollar, or was it basically completely worthless? Well, let's separate the two. The notes were short-term notes. They were issued uh, the same way that the union issued notes, uh, like currency. The union inflation over the course of the war was 80%, 8-0, over the four years. In the South, uh, the inflation was uh, 9,000%. So, you know, we're talking about Weimar Germany was one of the great inflations in history. It's a tough number to get your hands around, but to put it in more tangible terms, a barrel of flour in Richmond before the war cost $5.50. Midway through the war, it cost $38. That's 700 times. That's inflation of 700%. By the end of the war, uh, that barrel of flour cost 1000 Confederate notes. So the notes really just, they were worthless. The Erlanger bonds, the bonds that the South sold to uh, the Europeans, they were worth 80%, you know, 80% of par into the last year of the war. Remember, as late as August of 1864, people were thinking that the Lincoln would lose the, the his re-election, that there'd be some sort of a truce, that the South would be able to, to survive in, in some form of independence. A couple months later, Atlanta fell, and then all the dominoes in, in the South fell militarily, and ultimately those bonds were worth uh, zero, too. Uh, of course, the Union never paid back a cent, and why would they? This was a, a rebel nation, a traitorous nation, and they weren't going to honor their bonds. So what is the message that you would like to convey to readers uh, of your book, or people who haven't read it yet but want to know more about this subject generally? What is the message? Is it that the South was outsmarted by the North in terms of financing, or the South never really had a chance because of its weaker position to compete with the, the North in an extended war. What is the message that you would like to convey to people uh, who read your book? Well, it was outsmarted, but I think it was outsmarted for an important reason. The North and South really had very different conceptions of government. 
The South, as I said, their government was conceived not for all the people. It was a government of the aristocracy to benefit this, this thin layer at the top uh, who owned the, the bulk of the slaves. Uh, the North, Lincoln's government really was, in his mind, of the people, for the people, and by the people. They created a government that would support all the people. They set up the financial mechanisms. They set up a tax system because they were willing to make sacrifices for this government. They set up economic programs to provide upward mobility, economic mobility for the common man. And these systems, I think, were dispositive in who won the war. The uh, Southern leader at the end of the war uh, really was on to something who said, uh, the Yankees didn't whip us in the field, uh, we were whipped in the Treasury Department. So, in effect, if uh, Salmon Chase or whoever his successor might have been or his re uh, replacement had not been able to develop a means to uh, finance the war, the South could well have won the war. Is that your point? Because, in effect, this, the, the North had greater financing means, but suppose they hadn't had greenbacks, suppose they didn't had uh, the, the kind of things they developed to, to raise money, could it possibly have been the case? The South could well have won the war. I think you could have, if you had had a depression, uh, you know, you would have seen, you know, huge unhappiness. In 1863, we got close. There were draft riots in New York, which were really race riots, because people were so upset by the fact that prices were rising in the North and, and they didn't want to have to go down and fight a war uh, just in, in their minds uh, to liberate uh, Black slaves. I think, you know, had there been a prolonged economic depression in the North, uh, had the Republicans been forced out in 1864, uh, yes, I think the North would have been forced to sue for peace. And when the war was over, did all of the notes of the, the North get honored? And, and the, the, because they won, everything uh, was um, honored in terms of the notes and the, and the bonds and, and everything, the greenbacks. What happened to the greenbacks after the war? The greenbacks were very popular. Uh, there was a huge controversy about whether or not to issue more. Uh, people in the West and South, the farming communities, they wanted inflation. They wanted higher prices. Uh, they wanted to continue on a on a on a policy of of, of rapid increase the amount of greenbacks, but the bankers in the East uh, who controlled the government, uh, their philosophy they didn't want inflation. They wanted the dollar to become scarce again, and so the greenbacks were retired uh, for 100 cents of the dollar. The bonds were paid off early. This is a deflationary policy, so the amount of money in circulation was reduced. Uh, the money was 100% uh, money good, but it became uh, more scarce. And that led to uh, uh, the, the conflicts of the next year between the populists and the, the so-called Greenback Party and the bankers. So what happened to money? What what was the money of the U.S. government after the Civil War? Were there new versions of Greenbacks or they just started printing dollar bills the way we use dollar bills today? The new version as the Greenbacks went out of circulation were the national banknotes. So the, the banking system that Chase started during the war in 1863, that endured. Uh, all through to 1913, to, to the, the birth of the Federal Reserve. Those national banks, and even today when you go into cities, you'll see chiseled on those uh, Greek-style, Ionic, temple-style banks, you'll see National Bank of such and such, First National Bank of, Second National Bank of, even if the banks aren't called that anymore, uh, the stone carvings are still there. They are all Civil War-era banks, or they came from the, the Civil War-era banking system. So, uh, well, after the Civil War, did each bank of the ones you just talked about, for example, they issued their own notes and affect their own currency? Was there a, a one common currency immediately after the Civil War? They each issued their own notes, but they all were subject to the same regulations and they all had the same reserves and backing. One side of them would say uh, Chase Manhattan Bank of New York 
or First National Bank of, of Chicago. And the other side looked exactly the same. And it, it, it said national banknote. And one national banknote was the same as another national banknote. Uh, there was the same reserve fund behind them and so on. And um, it was much easier for Americans to trade with Europe because these, these notes were honored in, in financial capitals around the world. For the first time, the United States had a currency that rivaled the British pound. So when did we actually develop the kind of currency we have today? When did the U.S. government begin issuing dollar bills or $100 bills and, and, and basically eliminate the banknotes as currency? In 1913, the Federal Reserve uh, was created. Uh, banknotes remained in circulation, but over time they disappeared and were replaced by the Federal Reserve note, which is what, if you look at a dollar, you know, that, that it'll say Federal Reserve note. The Federal Reserve note is the one who issues the dollars. If they want to create inflation, they issue more Federal Reserve notes. If they want to bring inflation down, like now, they issue a fewer Federal Reserve notes. But that began in 1913. So I think there's a Federal Reserve note with Salmon Chase on it. Uh, he put his picture on the $1 greenback. Okay. He did that uh, uh, for one uh, good reason from his point of view. He knew that the $1 note was the one that was going to circulate most widely. And he was preparing to run for president. And he wanted everybody to uh, to see his picture on the, uh, on the greenback. So um, I think Salmon Chase, after the Civil War, ultimately resigned from his position. But what actually happened to him later? So he resigned in the uh, middle of 1864. He pushed Lincoln finally one time too far. Uh, Lincoln needed to fill a post and and Chase wouldn't listen to who Lincoln uh, wanted. And Chase, in in yet another fit of petulance, uh, resigned, expecting Lincoln to walk over and say, now, now, Mr. Chase, come on back. And Lincoln, by this point, he just went, phew, I'm rid of this guy. Uh, Chase, however, wasn't done. He had his eye in the Supreme Court. In August of 1864, Roger Taney, the uh, Chief Justice Supreme Court, died. Taney was notorious uh, for writing the Dred Scott decision, uh, of course, the, the, the one that really uh, enfranchised slavery legally before the war. Chase immediately began to lobby for uh, the Chief Justice job. Lincoln's allies didn't think he'd give it to Chase because Chase had been so disloyal. But Lincoln had two thoughts in mind about who he wanted for the Chief Justice. One is he wanted someone who would defend the Emancipation Proclamation. Remember the 13th Amendment hadn't been enacted yet. So the only thing there was to abolish slavery was the Emancipation Proclamation. It was really just a piece of parchment. Okay, the president had proclaimed it, but that's not law. He knew that Salmon Chase would back the legality of the Emancipation Proclamation. The second act of Lincoln's, he felt very worried about legally, was the Legal Tender Act. And he figured, well, Salmon Chase had used the Legal Tender Act to pay for the war. His picture's on it. Uh, He'll back those too. Uh, But before Lincoln uh, dies in in, uh, December of 1864, he nominates Chase to the Supreme Court. Uh, Lincoln, of course, is assassinated in April. A few years later, there's a court case challenging the legality of of the Legal Tender Act. By now, uh, Salmon Chase is stewing again about the next presidential election, Uh, He's still a little sore at Lincoln for having uh, grabbed all the glory. He's reverting to his old uh, gullbug ways. And uh, he votes against uh, the Legal Tender Act. And suddenly, legal tender notes are illegal again. Uh, Fortunately, there were two vacant seats on the the Supreme Court. And Grant, in a hurry, uh, filled them. And uh, another case came to the court. And this time, the court reversed Chase's decision. But he he disappointed uh, Lincoln in that legal tender decision. 
So this has been a very interesting conversation about ways and means, uh, Lincoln and his cabinet and the financing of the Civil War with uh, Roger Lowenstein, who is an expert in financing matters and has written several books on that subject. Thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you, David. It was my pleasure. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.